Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troop, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co-host Polly Young-Eisendratt. She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast. Our conversation today is going to be exploring the two great categories of human relating, love and hate. Why is love not an emotion or feeling? And what can we learn about our enemies by understanding human love and human hate? And now I'm going to turn the mic over to Polly. Hi, Eleanor. That's the first question, is why is love not an emotion? I want to talk about that from a number of perspectives, but the very first one is we expect love to endure through all kinds of feelings and emotions. We expect, if someone loves us, that they will continue to love us when we're angry, when we're sad, when we're irritated, and even when we become enraged. So love is actually kind of like an intention, like a deep intention, or you might call it a frame of reference or an attitude. Actually, Scott Peck way back when, in The Road Less Taken, had a chapter called Love is Not a Feeling. And what he was trying to establish there was this idea that people expect to feel love when they express it, like, oh, right now I feel affection for you, so I can say I love you. But if I'm not feeling affection, I can't say that. There's a lot of misunderstanding around this idea of love and around then the ideals of love. And some of those, particularly the ideals we hold for love, that is that if someone loves us, they should be able to tolerate almost anything that we throw their way, that they should be able to sustain a kind of unconditional regard for us, those kinds of ideals actually can turn love into hate, even in a moment, because that person who is supposed to love us that way falls hard from that high pedestal of this sense that we should be completely received by the other person. Now, there's a lot to say about love and about different kinds of love. There's romantic love. There's spiritual love. There's transcendent love, and then there is love of country and nature and lots of things. I hope we can return to the various categories because they do require a little more of a refined sense of love. But in a general way, there are some characteristics of human love that actually, I believe, transcend all those categories. So I want to mention those because I think that makes it easier for people to really understand what love is as different from idealization. 
And so the one category is this knowledge that you really have to have of your beloved before you actually can know that you can love another person in an enduring way through their various high points and low points, through their limitations, all their different moods and feelings and so on. Before you know you can love that individual, you have to get to know the person. So you have to know them well enough that you see them in a range of situations and possibilities. Similarly, if you have a love for a certain subject area, like you love French, or you have love for a certain context, like you love nature or you love farming, with all of those, you have to get to know them really quite well. You have to become familiar with them in order to know that you can abide through the changing circumstances that are going to come about as a result of your enduring involvement with whatever it is, your love for whom or whatever you love. So that first component is knowledge, that knowledge is a requirement for love. And the second component is interest, that you have a continuing interest and engagement with the person or the subject or the environment that you love. And, you know, I'm really describing the way love is more than like how love should be. I mean, when people love a subject area, they can't wait to continue to study it. They're interested in studying it. If you love a particular kind of car, you're interested in driving it and maybe in fixing it and doing lots of things with that object that you love. Similarly, when you love a person, you have to retain your interest day to day. And why is it so much harder than it is with a car, for example? You know, many times people say, I'm not that interested in my partner or it's usually a partner or a friend. It's almost never your child because with your child, you identify with your child. And so you're always interested because it's like being interested in yourself. But with somebody that you have known and you know over time, there's a tendency to assume that you can summarize them like the back of your hand, that you know all of their moods, you know what they say, you can predict it and so on. And of course, that is absolutely not true. If that were true, then life would not be impermanent, it would be permanent, so <laughs> that things would not change, but they do change. So loving another person often requires your working with your own thoughts and feelings to the degree that you can actually show that curiosity and interest, even though the other person is activating those triggers in which you are saying to yourself, I'm bored now, he says the same thing all the time, I never get a chance to talk, and so on. All of the things that we say to ourselves that actually bring about a kind of indifference to the person that we're supposed to love. So the two components of love that I believe transcend all the different kinds of love, whether it's a transcendent love or the personal love or the love of nature, subjects, or whatever, you have to know what you love or you can't say that you love it. And then you have to remain interested and engaged with what you love even though the circumstances are difficult, even though feelings change, your feelings, the other person's feelings, and even though it's an irritating or difficult moment. A lot of times I'll recommend to couples, for example, if you want to give negative feedback to a partner and you're feeling very agitated and negative, that the first thing you say is, of course I love you. You frame it. You're not feeling at that moment affection but you're remembering, this is my friend, and of course I love you, and I'm also angry with you. 
and then you give the feedback about the anger. I hope that's clear that love is not a feeling. It doesn't depend on affection. It doesn't depend on you feeling good about somebody. Of course, there has to be a reason why you want to get to know that person. There's an attraction to that person or that subject or whatever. But that ongoing interest is the character of love. And it doesn't change even though the other person is irritating or upsetting or even though when you go to repair the car, the car doesn't work well and so on. You continue to be interested in things that you love or people that you love. And when you stop, then you separate from that person or that subject. There's a division. You're no longer interested. You no longer want to know that. You no longer are engaged with it. So just that very first step about love actually being the combination of this kind of knowledge of the beloved and then the ongoing interest in the beloved. And of course, ultimately, when you love human beings, that interest also connects to, you know, when they need things, you try to help them because you're interested in their happiness. So does that make sense, Eleanor, or do you have other questions? Well, I don't really have very many questions around love because love is so much easier in a sense. The inspiration is there, the willingness is there, the curiosity and wonder, the joy, the pleasure, all the positive attributes of love. What interests me is what do we do in the face of hate? And so through all the dialogues we've been having in these series, we've been talking about ways to develop mindfulness, ways to develop new skills, ways to have a deeper understanding, more knowledge around how we avoid the traps of out-projecting hatred and destroying in the process. Can you just say a little bit more about that, Polly? I apparently wasn't clear because what you described was idealization and not love. When you said love is about joy and pleasure and interest and lots of things that are positive and expansive, and that's idealization. Love actually, when it endures, it contains the hate. I haven't described the hate yet, but love is an enduring interest in something or a person that endures through the hate. And the hate is a contractive experience within the love, but love doesn't vary based on the actual emotional experiences. It includes the discomfort, the anger, the hatred, all of the things that are contractive in our experience of another person are included in love, or it's not love. So this very pleasurable state of affection and so on, all of the things that we consider to be joy and pleasure, and all of those are connected with idealized things. But as soon as the beloved, whatever it is, truly disappoints us, then is the test of love. It's not idealization any longer. It's a test of love. So love includes the disillusionment. It includes the downside. And especially, and we'll talk about this in a moment, love includes hate. And hate is not the same thing as rage, for example, or aggression. Hate is a deep dislike, a deep contractive dislike of something or someone in a particular situation. So we can come back to hate, but it was interesting because you came back to the idea that love is pleasant. Well, I think I was talking in a very ordinary sense. I think when I'm hearing you're talking about is of a higher consciousness in terms of understanding love, I don't think a lot of people would easily understand that aspect of it. I think you're right. That's why I wanted to talk about it in the podcast, because even though people don't understand that love contains all these negative states, they expect that it will. 
I mean, you expect that your parent will continue to love you even if you are enraged or angry. You expect that your friend will love you even though you cause the friend a lot of problems or difficulties. We expect love to endure, but we may not understand that our own love needs to be practiced that way. You know, it's like we want it from others. We want good friends to stay by us through the difficult times. We want our parents to care for us even if we've created difficulty for them. We want the government that we love to continue to serve us even if we have turned against it and protested and so on. The state of love that most people expect does include a lot of negativity. Often people don't know that their own love needs to be practiced that way. So there's a tendency, I think, to romanticize love and to see it as something other than a practice or an attitude or an intention. And I wanted to read a little bit from a famous E.E. Cummings poem. It's called, I Carry Your Heart With Me, I Carry It In My Heart. And I want to read the lines that are at the end of the poem because I think, again, it's easy to romanticize them, but they're a good illustration of what we're talking about as a practice or a framework in which we engage in this way with others and with the things that we love. He says, here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than the soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. You know, when we hear those lines, we may think that they're about romance and they're about something like people having romantic love. To think of love in this other way as a practice, as a spiritual practice, to carry someone's heart within your heart will break your heart. There is no question about it. Anyone whose heart you carry is going to die, is going to get ill, is going to become angry, or maybe actually leave you, maybe destroy things in your life. And so if you're going to carry a heart within your heart, your heart will be broken. And so because of this, because in fact, I think many people know this in their experience, even though they may not think about it in their thoughts, people are afraid of love. They're afraid of actually going closely into a relationship with somebody that they know well and that they need to continue to be interested in and to care for even through changing circumstances because they know it's going to break their heart. Polly, do you think we can love in this higher sense that you're talking about if we don't have self-love, if we don't have a relationship to that within ourselves? That's a really good question, and I would return to our definition of self, which is that it's an interactional process. It's not contained within us. I would say that in order to love, you may start your practice of love by engaging with somebody else. 
But in order to love ultimately, it has to be a back and forth between your own being and another's being. And that allows you also to love yourself. I mean, if you really engage with something you love, you will notice that it changes yourself because the self is <laughs> interactional. So, you know, if you love, for example, bird watching, when you go out and you get to know the birds and they become familiar to you, you'll find that they're teaching you about yourself. You'll start saying, oh, I'm learning lessons about myself by watching the birds. Or if you have a child or a partner and you engage well with that being, you'll start to notice this other being is actually teaching me about myself. Oh, I'm learning things about myself by being with this being. Self is an interactional process. And in order to love yourself, I believe you do have to be engaged. You have to be engaged with something. You know, it can be bird watching. It can be another person. It can be your family. It can be a subject matter. But because the self is interactional and it's not within you, you have to engage in order not to be cut off from the experience of your own identity and your own being. So I think it's in the nature of love that you come to love yourself as well as whatever else it is that you love. So this is in this practice of love, which again, I would say this is human love. I want to talk in a little bit uh, about attachment bonds and how they're different from love. But human beings have this enduring interest and this deep knowledge of what they love. Does that make sense, Eleanor? Does that make sense in terms of, I know when you say, can, you know, do we need to love ourselves first? I realize that many people would be asking that kind of question. And what we're coming back to again and again here is the notion that the self is not contained within your body. It's an interactional process between you and others, what you could call the world. And so the more you engage and you come to know whatever it is you love, that affords you access to yourself and to loving yourself. Yeah, I'm really hearing the deep commitment to the other, self and other, and that it's through the two, it's through what you were talking about earlier, you know, the dependent arising, or they're both arising together, or what we were talking about with conflict, that we need the other. It's wonderful to step back a little bit and think about how we do come to know ourselves and appreciate ourselves and even love ourselves through the preciousness of another. Thanks so much for listening, and to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.